Okay, we'll go ahead and take a moment and dismiss children for children's church. So four years old up through second grade, anyone who would like to can head to room 107 at this time. Well, you heard in the announcements this morning that after the service, just a few minutes after the service here today, we're going to be having a fellowship lunch. You know, as a church, it's a joy to encourage fellowship throughout the year. We do this in a number of different ways, and certainly there are opportunities we give formally that our church body might fellowship together, but then this is just serving us to hopefully organically do this among the one another's in fellowship together. But we have a Wednesday evening fellowship meal throughout the year. We have the dinners for six groups and uh, just various events throughout the year. We as Christians cherish fellowship. That is something that is a joy to us. It is something that Christ produces and provides for us that in him we are not just random people walking about on the face of the earth maybe possibly just happening to run into one another, but we are redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ brought together in unity in Jesus Christ for fellowship. And we cherish this. We cherish this as Christians. We cherish this as a church body. We cherish seeing one another face to face. We cherish unhurried times like we hopefully will get after the service today, unhurried times of just visiting together. We cherish hearing about one another's lives. We cherish sharing about our own lives with others. We cherish laughing together. We cherish bearing one another's sorrows and burdens. Christ has done this work in us, and we cherish fellowship. One of the best ways to do this, as we know, is over a meal. And God has made it that way. I hope we don't get lost uh, in the sermon that we're going to be looking at this morning, the text of Scripture. Might we not lose sight of this? The Lord has put a rhythm of food into our lives with a very distinct purpose. It's not the only reason, but one of the purposes of being able to share food together is the opportunity it gives us for fellowship. That is a God-designed thing so that simultaneously as our stomachs fill up with food, our lives fill up with relationships and our lives fill up with fellowship with one another. I mean, just consider this on a universal level. Consider this for a moment universally. Food and friendships, food and relationships go together. This is true in the school cafeteria for little kids. This is true in a prison cafeteria for prisoners. This is true from the fine dining of a family restaurant or a fancy restaurant to a picnic table in the backyard. People anywhere in the world, at any time in the world, can break bread together, and it has the power to break down walls and to forge relationships. God has made it this way so that food and mealtimes bring people together and build friendships and relationships over it. So, that being true, 
If sharing meals together makes it easy to bring people together and make their friendships uh, closer to one another, imagine how difficult it would be to form relationships if people were banned from eating together. Imagine the challenge that would be to fellowship, to grow in friendships and relationships if you were banned from eating together. Now let's take this just a step further considering the text we're going to be looking at this morning. Imagine if that command came from God himself. What would be the purpose of such a command? To keep people from eating together. What would be the result between the two groups of people that were affected by this, if they were unable to eat together? And what would happen then if this command was finally lifted? What if that command served a purpose for a time, and then was lifted. This morning's sermon will explore all of those questions and more. In the end, we'll learn that the desire of Christ and the power of Jesus Christ is that people have fellowship, first of all, vertically with God, and then horizontal fellowship vertically with one another. And all of this is a visual picture of that fellowship that is happening at shared mealtime as we share the filling of our stomachs and we share the filling of our lives together. Kind of got an interesting title for this morning's sermon. It's just four words, but these words have a progression to them. It's diet, distinction, disfellowship, and declaration. It's the title of this morning's message. There's a progression to it because we will be looking at one of the more unique parts of Scripture where we'll dive back into the Old Testament and look at the food laws that God gave to the Jewish people, dietary food laws. And we'll ask the question, what were those for? How did God come about with those things? And are they still in place for God's people today? So whether you didn't know anything at all that there were food and dietary laws in Scripture, or you've always been curious about them, how, how did they come about? Why are they there? Are they just kind of arbitrarily thrown together? Or was there a purpose in God's giving these laws to Israel and then in Acts chapter 10, lifting those laws? Did those have a specific purpose in mind? What would that purpose be? How did God fulfill that purpose? All of those questions hopefully will be answered today in our text of Scripture. Now, just briefly, by way of review, we left off last Sunday with the Apostle Peter. You'll remember there was a couple of chapters in the book of Acts that we've been walking through where the focus was on Saul, who we would later know as the Apostle Paul, but it was on his conversion, things that were going on in his life, and the power that God was working through Saul. But then we shifted back to the Apostle Peter, And we left off last Sunday with him staying in the house of a tanner named Simon. We talked about how that incident was briefly mentioned. It was just one verse. We ended there. But it carried significance. And it carried significance insofar as it cracked the door open for what is now going to be taking place in Acts chapter 10. It was a significant thing for Peter to be staying with Simon the Tanner because a tanner deals with animal skins. And animal skins, or the carcasses of animals, 
are considered unclean to law-abiding Jews. So Peter's actions open the door for us to consider some of these clean and unclean laws of the Old Testament. Specifically for today's text, we'll need to be looking at what the Old Testament says about food and diet laws. So let's start there. This first word in our consideration this morning is going to be introductory. It's going to be background. We're going to have to go back to the Old Testament and then run up so that Acts 10 makes sense to us or at least would be fresh in our minds. Let's start with this idea of diet. We have to go back to Leviticus chapter 11. We'll see here that God issued dietary laws for his people. There were two sections of the Old Testament law that covered this. Leviticus chapter 11 Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, 14, and you know, uh, we could even say this, it's no secret even today that Jewish people keep special food laws. We all know the word kosher. What that means is to be clean and separated as uh, Jewish people cook their foods. Many Jewish kitchens have two ovens or two separate ways and places to prepare their food uh, so that they could be isolated and clean in that way. So it's no secret that even today we see this in our modern times, but these practices stem from Old Testament laws that God gave the Jewish people related to their food and their diet. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 11. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but what I do hope to do is to give us a, a good sampling of all of the different animals and birds and fish and all these things that were addressed in these food laws of Leviticus chapter 11. And this will help propel us forward moving from diet, saying, okay, what did God say to then what was his purposes for doing this? So look with me at Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. So these, these first three verses here deal with land-dwelling animals. And for them to be considered clean or edible for the Jewish people, these animals needed to chew their cud and have a cloven foot. So this would describe animals like sheep and goats and cattle, but it would also eliminate an animal like a horse that does not have a cloven foot but has one toe. Let's look at verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. So obviously, we're now dealing with water-dwelling creatures. These must have both fins and scales. And maybe to simplify, it's just describing fish. Fish would be allowable, but it would eliminate creatures like shrimp, lobster, squid, those that didn't have both of these qualifications. Let's look at verse 13 as it relates now to birds. These you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, it goes on and on, falcons and other birds. For the birds, the unclean could probably just be summarized or categorized as predator birds. Those were not to be eaten. Birds that would look upon 
prey and or eat off of the carcasses of other animals. Let's do a couple of more of these. Verse 20, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. So these would be winged insects that, that can leave the ground would be clean and edible, but those that have wings but never fly or leave the ground were not to be eaten. Verses 24 and 25, by these ye shall become unclean, Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. These verses obviously are describing the carcasses of dead animals. Touching those carcasses would render a person unclean for that day until the evening. And then finally, let's look at verse 29. These are unclean to you among the swarming things, that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind. It goes on to describe more variations of lizards and such. These verses would describe animals of the ground that are unclean and not to be eaten. So hopefully this gives us a little sampling here as we jump into Leviticus 11. We see that such were the dietary food laws that the Israelites were to live by. Now, for centuries... Bible students have tried to figure out why, to figure out some kind of rationale or some kind of algorithm, if you will, of why God chose some animals as clean and considered others as unclean. Here's some of the more popular suggestions on that. Maybe, some say, these would have contrasted to the Canaanite peoples of the land and the diet with which they ate. So there was making a distinction between that. Others would say that the Lord here had a concern for hygiene or health. Some animals were considered more healthy or more clean to eat. And maybe another theory would be that animals that did not or uh, would not conform to the normal behavior or existence of their body style or their type. So a winged animal that never actually flew. So that didn't really conform to some of the things that the animal was equipped with. That's how the Lord was making distinguishment. The problem with all of these theories is that none of them really sufficiently and adequately answer all of this. To which we would just say, in the end, the best answer to which animals were considered clean or unclean is simply this. The ones that God declared clean and unclean. That fits all of this. And to try to find these other purposes and reasons really misses the point we're going to find here as we move along this morning, God did this for a specific purpose. He declared clean and unclean for the purpose of, as we move on to the second point, distinction. The diet he gave Israel was to make a distinction. And so declaring these clean and unclean animals, the purpose that the Lord was doing this was to make a distinction between his people, the Israelites, and the other peoples of the land or the world. God actually told them the reason, and we're going to look at it here in Leviticus 11, just a little bit further down as the chapter closes. He actually told his people the reason for these laws, and it was to make a distinction between his chosen people and the rest of humanity. So God gave them laws, and just think of the brilliance and the genius of this in the mind of God. 
He gave them laws that would be visually identifiable, readily identifiable for his people. One of the ways that no matter where you went in the world and who you were in the world, you would immediately be able to distinguish and identify an Israelite would be by the food that they ate, the food choices that they made. And this would show a distinction between their, God's people, the Israelites, who were separated unto him and those who were not. Look down at Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 47. This would be a summary of all of these food laws that God had given them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy." This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So God first establishes the fact that he is Israel's God. They are his people. I have redeemed you, he says. You are mine. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, made you my possession. Then God declares the fact that he is holy and separate from sinful man. But he has then redeemed Israel and called them unto himself. Therefore, they're to have indicators of distinction to show that God's salvation separates a clean people from an unclean people. The Israelites were to function as an indicator of distinction on behalf of God. The Lord says, I am holy, therefore you will be holy. I am separated from anything unclean. I am separated from sin. I am separated from death and decay. You will be an indicator of that as well, visually on this earth. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the separation of God from sinful earth and unclean man. So these food and these dietary laws, they were a powerful, they were a visual picture that taught different things. They taught between clean and unclean. They taught of holy and unholy. They taught of being separated unto God as his people or unto the earth as those who were lost. So, just before we now turn to Acts chapter 10, I want to try to summarize this as plainly as possible. God gave Israel dietary laws, not for arbitrary reasons, but purposely to show a distinction between his people and the pagan world. This in turn caused a powerful and visual lesson about fellowship in particular. As we'll see now as we turn to the book of Acts, we're going to actually see passages like Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 played out in the life of a Jew and a Gentile that are about to meet. The Jews, because they had these dietary food laws given to them, we're not supposed to associate 
or eat or fellowship with someone who was not right with God. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 10. This is our third word. We looked at diet. That is the what of what God did. And the purpose or the reason was to make a distinction. But now there's a result of that distinction. It actually produced between Jew and Gentile disfellowship so that they were not allowed to eat together. They were not allowed to fellowship together. This was a picture that unless you are right with God and in fellowship with him, you were not to be right with his people and in fellowship with them. We spent some time establishing the background so that this encounter between Peter and a Gentile now will make sense. So let's meet this Gentile that's about to encounter Peter here in Acts chapter 10. Look with me at verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with the one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, here's Cornelius, a Gentile. And he was an officer in the Roman army. He commanded a cohort, it says, probably up to about 100 men were under his command. But he's also a man, we're told here in the scripture, who feared God. Which means he believed Israel's God to be the one true God, but he had not fully committed and not fully converted to be a Jew, meaning he had not been circumcised. He had not submitted himself fully to that degree. So he is called here a God-fearer. The Lord gives him a vision, tells him to send for Peter and to bring Peter to his home. That's significant. Peter was to go to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, whom the food and dietary laws of the Old Testament would have disfellowshipped them and not allowed Peter to enter into Cornelius' home. Isn't it interesting that God did not choose here to just send Cornelius to Peter? But he said, go uh, this journey, send some men of the 30-ish mile journey, bring Peter to your home. That is significant. Let's see how Peter now enters this story, picking it up in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. So the sixth hour is about noon, according to the Jewish timetable. So at about noon, he's hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, 
and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now we understand a little bit of the significance of the background of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Something very unusual is taking place here. In verse 13, given what we learned from Leviticus, the major issue here is that there's no distinction being made of these animals. There's this large sheet coming down from heaven, animals of every kind, no distinction, and a voice that says, rise, kill, and eat. It's interesting that God had issued a food law in the Old Testament, but now he is withdrawing it. That food law has served its purpose. It has served its time. And now God is saying, it is time to withdraw. It is time to reverse. It has accomplished what it was to accomplish. Then we look at verse 14. How is Peter going to respond? He's a good practicing Jew who has never eaten anything unclean in his life. In verse 14, he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. In Moses' day, God had made a distinction to serve as a visual lesson. Now God has lifted that distinction to serve as a brand new lesson that Jew and Gentile will now be given access to God through Jesus Christ. This is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. This is the longest narrative in all of the book of Acts. It is given tremendous attention because of what is taking place here. Where God had taught humanity about the distinction between clean and unclean, holy and unholy, he is now teaching them about salvation What God has declared clean, you no longer call common or unclean. We read on now from verses 16 to 28, as Peter now starts to try to grasp this complete paradigm shift from eating and and making a distinction between what to eat and what not to eat to now all things being called clean and edible. And we'll learn in just a moment, it wasn't about the food. It was a lesson about people. Verse 17, now when Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. 
The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We're told later in the story that six men accompanied Peter. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. I'm not worthy to be worshipped. That is not for me. That is for God alone. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. We'll stop right there. In verses 16 and 17, it described how difficult of an issue this was for Peter to grasp. All of my life, according to Old Testament law, make a distinction between foods of clean and unclean. Now they're all declared clean by the Lord. He's wrestling with this. God repeated it three times to him to make sure that he got it, the scripture says. Peter was still inwardly wrestling And yet, this is beautiful, even though Peter did not fully understand what was going on, even though he didn't fully grasp what God was doing, he still obeyed him and he went. Go to Caesarea, go to the house of a Gentile and stay with him. Peter, not even fully comprehending and realizing, did what the Lord said. But verse 28 there sheds so much light on this entire encounter. The food laws that God had given to Israel that created a disfellowship with non-Jews where it had become virtually impossible to associate with a Gentile if you were a Jewish person because of this common and unclean practice. The only way for a Jew to rightly fellowship with a Gentile was for that Gentile to first be put in right fellowship with God vertically, then he could be put in right fellowship with God's people horizontally. Disfellowship with the Jews was a visual extension of disfellowship with God, which was the entire purpose that those food laws served. Now, those food laws have served their purpose. They've done their duty. The Lord lifts them and reverses them. Which brings us to the final point here this morning. We've looked at these D letters, the diet, which was for the purpose of distinction. The result was that it led to disfellowship and all of that was to be a visual picture that if you are not right with God, you will not be right with his people. And the disfellowship that was with God's people was to be a picture that they were also not right with God himself. Disfellowship was something that began back in the Garden of Eden when God put Adam and Eve out because his holiness could not be with unrighteousness. And that disfellowship has limped along and been a picture all along the way that we are at odds with one another and we are at odds with God because we are unclean. We need saving. We need redeemed. We need to be put in right fellowship. So how does that happen? We'll look at this number four this morning as we wrap up our text here. There is this 
tremendous declaration from God that removes the wall of disfellowship. Verse 28, the end of verse 28, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but, and this was huge, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. All right, right away, do we see how Peter immediately made the connection between food laws and people? It served the entire purpose it was supposed to have served. Peter immediately sees that this sheet coming down with food and being told, take up and eat, there's no longer a distinction between them, meant that there was a connection immediately made between what was taking place there with the food laws and what was taking place with Jew-Gentile relationships. And so he tells them immediately, God showed me that I am not to call any person common or unclean. Open fellowship with Gentiles is now permitted because the dietary law has been lifted and reversed. Can, can we just pause for a moment and wonder what that first Jew-Gentile meal would have looked like? They have just been sitting there at table looking at one another? How is this possible? We're not disobeying God by doing this? Peter's thinking, I'm sitting in a Gentile's house breaking bread with the Gentile. How wild would that very first fellowship meal have been? But it was because God had declared it. God's word spoke that this should be. Verse 29, Peter says, So when I was sent for, I came without objection, simply obeyed God. I asked then why you sent for me. Peter obeyed God and entered Cornelius' home without objection. Quite a thing for a Jewish person to do. Verses 30 through 33 finish our text this morning. Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Well, God's been doing a tremendous work on both sides here. God has prepared Peter and his companions, Jews, and God has prepared Cornelius and his family and anybody else who he's brought into his home, Gentiles. They brought them all under one roof. They say, we're here in the presence of God. They are to hear of this new fellowship that God is bringing through Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, we'll listen to Peter as he preaches one of the most significant sermons in all of history. But that's for next week. Let me just conclude with a couple of words here. You know, as we pull all this together this morning, I know it was a lot of scripture. I know we went to the Old Testament, came back to Acts chapter 10. But let's not miss the big picture here God is holy. He is set apart. 
He is separated from darkness. He is separated and set apart from uncleanness and sin. And then God calls Israel out from among them so that they would also be holy as an extension of who he is. He told them, be holy, be separated as I am holy, as I am separated. One of the main ways that this separation affects humans is in the realm of fellowship. So God installed these food laws in the cultural life of Israel to teach the world about separation and disfellowship. That was a very living visual gospel that to be out of sorts with God means to be disfellowshipped from God and his people. It taught them what it meant to be clean and unclean. But now here in Acts 10, that we looked at this morning, we see that clean and unclean food laws have served the purpose for which they were intended. This separated God has now come to be a saving God. This separated God that wanted to teach humanity about disfellowship has now come in the person of Jesus Christ to save them and to show them what fellowship is all about. Brothers and sisters, we cannot discount vertical fellowship with God and horizontal fellowship with his church. These are two tremendous pictures that God has been teaching humanity of all time, that he is a separated God, but he is a saving God that brings us together in fellowship in Jesus Christ. This is the sermon we'll hear about next week from the lips of Peter. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, we're lost so many times on, on the significance of the power of what you are doing, the message that you are preaching the way in which you are teaching us about yourself. Lord, I pray that we would take these lessons to heart this morning, that even though you are a separate God, separate from the common, separate from the profane, separate from the sinful, you are also a saving God that brings us into fellowship with you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that even here on earth we can enjoy face-to-face -face fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it gives us just a glimpse, just a taste of the fellowship you give us forevermore with you in heaven and with the saints in glory. But I pray that you would press this passage of scripture into our hearts here this morning. Teach us that we might know more about you, live more affectionately and fully for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, if